Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Political Science. I'm Cyril Ghosh, your host. As some of you already know, in this series, we pick new books in political science and we interview the authors of these books. This week's interview is with Elizabeth Cohen, Associate Professor of Political Science at Syracuse University. Her new book is Semi-Citizenship in Democratic Politics. It's published by Cambridge University Press in late 2009. The book introduces the intriguing new concept of semi-citizenship and argues for a whole new way of understanding the concept of citizenship itself. Cohen claims that in every democratic polity there exist individuals and groups who hold some, but not all, of the essential elements of citizenship. She thus disaggregates the concept of citizenship into the various kinds of rights it bestows and then goes on to demonstrate that every democratic polity incorporates members who are systematically denied certain rights while still being recognized as full citizens in the eyes of the state. In addition, she claims that such semi-citizenships are an enduring and inevitable part of all democratic polity. I interviewed her today and I asked her to elaborate further on some of these propositions in the book. So, without further ado, here is the interview. Hello, Elizabeth, and welcome to New Books in Political Science. Uh, it is a pleasure to have you with us, and I, I want to thank you for your time this, this wonderful springtime, like Friday afternoon. <laughs> thank you, Sarah. It's wonderful to be here. Right. Okay, so your new book is Semi-Citizenship in Democratic Politics, which was published in late 2009 by Cambridge University Press. And as I understand it, you are currently working on another book on citizenship, and I hope that by the end of this conversation, we can talk a little bit about that, maybe. I hope that works for you. Yes, that sounds wonderful. Great. Uh, But before anything else, I want to say I'm very much looking forward to this conversation, and I want to start by asking you to speak a little bit about the concept of semi-citizenship, the word that appears in your title intriguingly, provocatively, and so on and so forth. The term itself refers to um, the idea that uh, groups and individuals in any democratic polity can um, gain the legal definition of citizen or non-citizen. And this is kind of a a big um, space within democratic politics that many people refer to. Everybody kind of knows it, but we don't have a lot of technical language to speak about um, how people fall into this status, how people sometimes choose it, um, what it really looks like, and um, most importantly, what the differences are between groups um, that would be considered semi-citizens. So how can we compare them and um, and and really know when we want to say that somebody uh, is a semi-citizen? So the idea is to carve out this space and then bring some analytic precision to discussions of 
groups of people um, who don't have full citizenship. Right. Um, well, can you just briefly uh, give us an example of like one or two kinds of these semi-citizens? Sure. Um, I talk about a number of different groups in the book, and of course, um, uh, there are many more out there. Um, but in the book, I discuss um, children, for example, as a group of people who are usually born with what I refer to as legal nationality. They're born um, almost always with um, the right to carry a passport, even before they can actually carry the passport. Right. Um, yeah. They they have a legal nationality. They're assigned to membership in a state, and they usually have some rights. Children are usually entitled to, um, in particular, what T.H. Marshall would refer to as social rights, um, things having to do with social welfare the right to an education, um, uh, the right to certain um, social welfare provisions that uh, maintain a minimum standard of well-being, um, possibly health care, uh, even um, uh, assistance with, uh, with food and, and um, other welfare provisions. They don't have those rights. They don't have other rights. Uh, children certainly don't have political rights. They are neither entitled to the franchise, the vote, nor are they legally represented in any way. Um, at best, we might say that children uh, kind of fall into the old model of coverture in which we expect, um, in this case, parents rather than husbands, um, parents to represent them politically. But that's an informal arrangement. Um, in fact, parents aren't expected to vote on behalf of their children. Um, they don't get extra votes if they have more children. Um, so children aren't formally represented. They don't have political rights. They also don't have a lot of civil rights, um, freedoms of expression, uh, free movement, um, things like that. So, you know, they're, they are constrained in many ways. They are classic semi-citizens. Right. And I do know that in certain parts of the book, you also talk about gays and lesbians as another example. And I want to uh, talk about that a little bit. But before that, you know, when you speak, you mention things like legal nationality and you mention things like coverture. And I, I just want to clarify because I don't know if all of our listeners are actually acquainted with these, these words or these terms uh, or the specific meanings of these terms. So briefly, sure. could you just like just briefly talk about coverture and where it comes from and what it relates to? Sure, coverture it, um, refers to the fact that um, for a long time in um, in Western law, uh, women were essentially transferred um, from their fathers to their husbands, and um, so they never really had very much. A formal legal standing of their own. Their fathers represented them when they were girls, um, and it's up until the point that the fathers basically made a contract with the suitor, the husband to be, um, in, often involving the exchange of property, a dowry, uh, right. in the terms of the woman, and then the woman uh, was folded into the legal identity of the husband, so that judges speaking would speak quite openly about the fact that a marriage um, it has one legal person, the husband. And so for all public intents and purposes, um, you know, voting, civil rights, things like that, uh, women had no public standing. And this is, a, you know, this has gradually vanished um, with respect to women, but 
you take it for granted with respect to children. So that's what coverture means. Right. Um, legal, legal nationality, I refer to, um, a lot of people actually use the word citizenship as proxy for legal nationality. Legal nationality simply refers to um, the right to exist in a country and um, and expect, be, expect to be able to return to its borders. So um, if you're an, a U.S. national, um, you can expect to live without being deported in the United States, and if you leave, you can expect to be accepted back. Okay, but well, there is something you say about being a U.S. national may not mean that you're a U.S. citizen. Is that uh, what? What exactly does that mean? Well, like I said, you know, the word citizen does sometimes get used as a proxy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I use I use the word national. You know, it's really interesting because legal nationality itself, like many rights, can come in, in multiple forms. So you might find somebody with some of those rights. Um, they don't actually have a passport, but they have a visa. And the visa, the, the terms of the visa will allow them for, let's say, a certain period of time to live in the United States without being deported and also to be able to travel outside of the country and expect to return back. Right. And so that's, that's, a, that's, that's some of the rights of legal nationality. Right. Well, um, I actually do want to ask you a more primordial question about this book, and uh, I, but the, the, the discussion is so interesting that I didn't want to interrupt. But I do want to ask you, well, what, what got you interested in the topic in the first place? Like, what are the sort of intellectual foundations of, of, of this book? Well, um, I'd say there's, there's intellectual foundations and there's personal foundations that brought me to the book. And the intellectual foundations um, really stem back to uh, work I did early in graduate school on um, both service persons and, in particular, guest workers in Germany. I was in graduate school in the uh, mid to late 90s. Um, I was working doing coursework then, and I became really interested in... Um, really the failure of the German government to extend um, citizenship to the, in some cases, second-generation um, Turkish individuals who had two parents or who themselves had come to the country to work. Um, these, these were parts of, the types of policies that started in the post-war era and were pervasive throughout Europe, um, but Germany is had a particularly aggressive guest worker program, and yet here we are, you know, many, many decades later, and um, you've essentially got an underclass of people who, because Germany has youth and we need, they pass their citizenship through blood. Um, anybody who comes who doesn't have German blood is perpetually excluded from the polity. This didn't mean that Germany was unwilling to grant any rights to the Turkish um, residents. In fact, they did have rights. Um, and so I was really interested in the idea that there could be this perpetual class of people who isn't entirely disenfranchised, but also um, isn't going to be able, or would, it would be very difficult for them to become fully enfranchised to have actual citizenship. Yes. So to the intellectual roots of, of the project. Um, personally, I'm also, of course, um, I am the... Uh, daughter and granddaughter of um, refugees uh, uh, who were left stateless after World War II. And so I grew up with a very, very uh, strong um, 
appreciation for the fact that I had full citizenship. I was I was born with the rights of a U.S. national, and by the time I had turned 18, uh, of course, I had all the rights that um, my family had had been excluded from for a long time. So there's that as well. Right. Do you do you ever feel like that uh, the best books are written when one is personally invested in the topic? Does it ever come come across your mind? Um, it may be the case. I also think that it's probably um, it's possible to become personally invested in lots of different ways. So um, the the absence of a story like that would not make me think that um, somebody wouldn't write an excellent book because we do attach to topics in a, a whole variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you you mentioned uh, the Jus Sanguinis policies of Germany, and um, uh, for some of our listeners, this might be a new term. I I want to raise this question: like, what are some of the other ways of structuring citizenship norms and policies? Like, what the U.S. does not have Jus Sanguinis, for instance. Well, what sure, sure. Yeah. Well, Jus Sanguinis and its um, kind of legal converse, Jus Soli. Uh, are part of what is broadly considered birthright citizenship. And all this birthright citizenship means is that um, almost everywhere it is the case that one's um, nationality and um, from that will stem many rights is conferred when they are born. There are two ways that birth can confer citizenship. Birth can confer citizenship by connecting the child to the, the bloodline of the parents, as is the case in Germany. So German children, uh, or children of German people, regardless of where they are born, can um, be eligible for German citizenship. This is also true of countries like Israel and Japan. Right. Um, you refers to citizenship based on place of birth, soil. Um, and... Uh, France has often been considered a classic youth-solely country. Um, this means that if you're born in the country, then you are eligible for citizenship, regardless of the blood or um, nationality of one's parents. The United States has historically used a combination of rules. Obviously, we have excluded people from from U.S. nationality based on their blood um, or not conferred rights of citizenship because of blood lineage, but um, contemporary law is much, much more heavily influenced by youth solely. Right. Um, I want to uh, ask you a slightly different question now, and this question relates to your methods. I mean, there is a whole section in the book in which you talk about um, the fact that most of the scholarship on citizenship, like it routinely people are interested in normative questions, and that you are uh, very much focused on um, analytically deconstructing the concept of citizenship, unbraiding the concept of citizenship in a sense. And um, I was hoping that you'd speak a little bit about that and what the utility is of using this kind of a rigorous systematic analytic method to understand citizenship. Sure. Um, Well, I think that, you know, methodology will, of course, be of limited interest to people who aren't specialists, but I think that everybody who's thinking about citizenship, particularly, let's say, if they're sitting in the United States um, right now, uh, probably knows that um, there's a lot of interest 
in immigration right now, and it's a very heated discussion. And the discussion, what you see, um, you know, Obama just gave a speech. There was just an op-ed published in the New York Times kind of um, saying, you know, Obama, hey, we're going to have to, uh, hey, we're going to have to enforce the laws if, if the federal government doesn't. The rhetoric is all um, very much couched in the language of what's right and what's wrong. Uh, that is normative language. Um, what should we do? Uh, what are our obligations? And um, what's fair? I think that those are incredibly valuable discussions, and believe you me, I enter into them all the time. Right. <laughs> when I'm when I'm not entering into them, I'm thinking about them as I read, you know, the text of Obama's speech or these op-eds. Mm-hmm. However, there's also, I think, a very important space in academic work for thinking about uh, how things actually are, um, and that's analytic work. So um, what is the situation of somebody who comes into the United States, for example, on H-1B, a temporary work visa? What, what, where do they fall? What are their rights? How do they stack up against um, other groups of people who are perhaps here temporarily or perhaps not here temporarily, mm-hmm. perhaps here permanently? Um, let's just for a little while, just for the brief space of one book, leave the normative, the right and wrong aside, and just get some concepts down that can describe the way in which citizenship actually functions. Right. And and what might be gained from that? I think uh, one of the things that can be gained from that, and this is just my take on this, is that but using this kind of a method, you can then start to say, well, exactly, and you have this too, exactly what uh, locus the particular person falls in. And then you can say, okay, this person has some of these rights, you identify the rights, and then that establishes a framework from which you can then make normative uh, judgments and critiques and all the rest of it. Uh, do, you, do you feel like a normative critique would be enhanced because of your work? I would hope so. I would hope that, um, you know, one of the, one of the, I would hope that people can use it to make their own normative arguments. Um, you know, one of the conclusions of the book is that semi-citizenship is inevitable. Um, there's, there's going to be semi-citizenship in every democratic polity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, that means that where you can have to do some normative work. Um, it's, it's necessary because if democracies, liberal democracies, are predicated on the idea that people should be equal, um, that we need to meet on equal ground in order to do politics collectively, mm-hmm. and yet we know that everybody can't be equal, we want to have a really good sense of who's not, and um, we're going to have some arguments about who should be and who shouldn't be. Right. Should the should the person who's who's been working in the country continuously for maybe over a decade, should they have more political rights than the person who's been here for two years? Well, you know, it's it's a question worth asking, and um, and so I think that um, it's a normative argument that people can use the concept of semi citizenship to to clarify. 
Right. And of course, this brings us to questions of competence and who is competent to be a full citizen and who is not. And there is a whole sort of history of scholarship on this, on who is supposed to be eligible for it. Like in political theory, we, we discuss this all the time. Like there are exclusions and not all exclusions are uh, patently unjust. Like some, there, there exist some justifications for certain kinds of exclusions, I feel like. But... Um, but, uh, you know, the thing that I find uh, very, very interesting is the way in which you talk about citizenship as a braided bundle of rights and how there are autonomous and relative rights and each one of those sets has a strong version and a weak, like a weak version. So maybe I was hoping you would talk a little bit about that, like precisely how do you conceptualize that particular thing? Sure. Well, um I thought by talking about citizenship as a braided bundle, um, in order to kind of critique the, the idea that um, it's very tightly bundled. So, um, you know, I, I go through and discuss the different types of rights that people uh, associate with citizenship. And there's often in these accounts a very evolutionary sense, right? So the idea that... Yeah. Yeah, the idea that in you know in the 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 seventeenth eighteenth century we're developing civil rights, the right to to form contracts and expect the government to enforce them, um, and the right to speak freely and free worship and conscience, all of these things. Mm-hmm. But in the nineteenth century, um, the West anyway developed a common sense of political rights, franchise and representation. And then in the 20th century, social rights came along to complete the picture to somehow mitigate the excesses of capitalism that might make it difficult to exercise one's uh, political and civil rights. Right. So that's an evolutionary model that kind of links these rights very tightly. They're dependent on each other, and um, and and um, it's expected that a person will carry all three types of rights and. One of the purposes of the book is to point out there's people walking around all the time who who actually have some of the strands, but not all the strands. Right. In order to simplify things a little bit, I say, look, yes, there are differences between political, civil, and social rights, but maybe we can classify things in a, in a simpler way um, and just say there are rights that are associated with a particular political system. And then there are rights that we need no matter where we are. So the franchise, believe it or not, the vote is, is a right that's associated with a particular political system. Right. Um, so <laughs> this is amazing, yes. <laughs> it is amazing, but, but it is the case that um, it, it means something different everywhere you go. So the, your, your vote, you know, the Canadians, the Canadian Senate just held an election, one's vote means something different there because... Um, because it's a different political system than it does in the United States. So the vote is tied to a particular political system. Many rights are. Um, but take, for example, the social, a social welfare right to, um, to health, right? Um, it's your health, your needs, your physical needs don't change even when you leave one political system and go to another. Right. And you could be... So I categorize yeah. them. Yes, Sorry. yes, I say, I say that, that, um, relative rights, like the vote, 
are relative to the political system mm-hmm. that you're in. Autonomous rights exist no matter, you know, the, the, those, those needs, the needs they fulfill exist no matter what political system you're in. We've then only got two types of rights instead of three or four or five. Right. Um, and um, then we can simply say, do the group have a weak set of autonomous and relative rights, or do they have a strong set of autonomous and relative rights? And that just yields a two-by-two table rather than an extremely messy Venn diagram or <laughs> some other kind of spaghetti, right spaghetti that we might develop if we were looking at semi-citizens in a kind of more fine-grained way. Right. Um, but the question that comes to mind when you say, when you talk about autonomous rights, rights that exist uh, uh, and needs that exist uh, um, across the globe for anyone, and it's not tied to a policy, and that even if you, you know, cross sovereign national borders, you still have those rights or those needs, it, the phrase that comes to mind is human rights. And would you think that do you think that autonomous rights is just another way of saying human rights, or is there a distinction? Well, you know, I think that people might want to use the word human rights to refer to all the rights that we think people should have, um, and that we might also want to include some relative rights in there. Human rights frameworks have tried to abstract. So, in other words, say that people are entitled to some kind of representation. Right. Um, it is still the case that as long as we exist in a nation-state system, and I think the nation-state system is alive and well, yeah. um, people that, that that will still be a relative right. So that even though um, the human rights community would consider it a human rights violation to deny somebody who is otherwise entitled um, to deny them the franchise. It's still going to be relative to the political system they're actually a part of. Hmm. Um, You do speak of uh, different types of norms and how they interact to create this category of semi-citizen. And uh, and these norms that you identify are liberal norms, democratic norms, and administrative norms. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit and exactly what, how these, these norms interact to include and exclude people from the policies? Right. Well, um, if you take the phrase liberal democracy <laughs> and pull it apart, uh, you find it unfortunate and uncomfortable. Uh, reality, uh, which is that uh, democracy is a very boundary-enforcing category. To have a demo right. automatically means that some people are excluded and some people are included. Um, this is, you know, again, it's the uncomfortable reality of democracy. It's an exclusionary thing. Liberalism as a doctrine, however, is completely inclusionary. Um, liberalism entitles people to rights based on their personhood, based on, you know, sometimes their rationality or um, their their equality. Uh, and so you've got a conflict there. The minute you say this is a liberal democracy, you know you have a problem because you're saying that people are entitled to rights because of their inherent equality, and then you're turning around and saying, but we're going to form some boundaries right. for a demo. So some, some people, despite the fact that there are also people, are going to be excluded. Mm-hmm. There's a problem there. There's a, there's a third problem that I identify, and that is that liberal democracies uh, require, in order, in order to, to actually affect them, require states. Um, and not only that, they require 
something that uh, a concept that, that Foucault introduced to the study of politics, and that is governmentality. Um, but put very, very efficiently, it is the case that in addition to this conflict between what is, how a democracy will think and how liberalism thinks, um, there's administrative rationality, which is a term from Javarian social science that simply means, you know, that uh, in order to get things done, we're going to have to make some choices. Things have to get done one way or another. Um, and so, you know, states have boundaries. It's not just the demos, then. Those are boundaries um, that that exist in land. Um, and so you've got three things, actually, that, that need each other. And yet, often, in order to pursue their own, the logic of each particular way of doing politics, um, they'll come into conflict as well. And the argument that I make is simply that it's the conflicts between these different ways of thinking about politics that are dependent on each other and yet divergent. It's the conflicts that create semi-citizenship. Right. And do you think that it is inevitably the case that one of these norms actually wins out over the other, or is it just like a toss-up, like, you know, or exactly how does it work itself out? Uh, do you have a sense of exactly how what, what the, how it works out practically? Well, um, you know, ad hoc compromises get created. So, um, you know, democratic theory will say that a child can't, being a citizen, right, mm-hmm. because a child isn't competent. Right. Liberalism will come along and say this child is, is a person, and administrative rationality kicks in and says, okay, at age 18, we will just deem that a person who has previously been a child will uh, possess the capacity to exercise democratic rights in full, and we will give them those rights. Right. So that's a compromise. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what you're saying is that it depends on the circumstances and, and the, the sort of everyday practice of politics. And uh, eventually one or more of these norms just, uh, uh, you know, gets established as practice. Is what it sounds like. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, I I do want to uh, cha- uh, change the the direction of this of this interview and and talk a little bit about your future work. But you know there are several questions that remain uh, in mind about this book. Just one final thing about this book is that your case study of, of gays and lesbians in the United States. Exactly uh, what? How are gays and lesbians uh, analogous to uh, either analogous to or can be differentiated from children? And how are they semi-citizens? Exactly what norm is at work there? Could you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, I um, in in book I discuss the fact that I I. I focus most heavily on the um, treatment of um, LGBT persons, um, civil rights, and in particular, civil rights of marriage. I treat marriage as a contract right, and I discuss the fact that this is a contested contract right, but um, first of all, you know, to refer back to our discussion about human rights, um, you know, it, it is the case that there's um, a really wide consensus in the human rights community that the right to form families um, 
and be married is a core human right. Yeah. This is something distinctly human. Everybody ought to be entitled to do this. You then look at the struggle that um, LGBT persons have had to um, to have that right recognized, and you see that um, it's it's a it's a narrow slice of the entire citizenship package, right? It's just one thread within one strand of the braid, right. but it's a very significant one, yeah. and it's been contested. Um, and and so I make the argument that this is, you know, these are people, these are individuals who have semi-citizenship. It's a fairly strong form of semi-citizenship. In other words, it's endowed with many, but not all rights of citizens. Right. And and so if, you know, children have a far weaker semi-citizenship, they are, you know, they too are actually not entitled to legally marry. Um, but they're not entitled to do many, many things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that, this is kind of a side issue that I find really interesting, mm-hmm. is that when I wrote the book, I, I drafted it, I tossed it around. Everywhere I went, people said, um, you need to take the key out, because transgendered individuals are not facing the same obstacles right. that other um, same-sex couples are, um, and same-sex couples face obstacles. Um, in getting married, but in particular in having their children recognized as children within a marriage, and that that contains um, really, really important forms of legal recognition. And with this this month in Texas, of course, there's been a challenge to the right of transgendered individuals to marry. Mm-hmm. So, um, in a sense, that particular decision has been vindicated because although there's been mostly forward progress on recognition. Right for same-sex marriage and for the rights of LGBT individuals, um, it's not been a one-way street. Um, and that's definitely a regressive proposal in Texas. Right. Um, you know, is there a way, Is there? A, you talk about uh, children not having the right to vote, for instance, but presumably upon reaching maturity, they will be able to. Uh, so this is one form of semi-citizenship. And then there's this other form, uh, where the right to form a family is being denied to certain groups of people. And amazingly, of course, that a person, uh, two mutually consenting adults who are uh, entirely asexual or unable to have children, they can marry. People can marry in prison, but uh, gays and lesbians cannot marry. So, it, And it's fairly permanent, uh, uh, pending some kind of a drastic change in, in like a Supreme Court decision or something. But the question, I'm rambling a little bit, but the question I'm trying to ask is that, do you think that there is a way to compare the relative deprivation of rights, like the rights of children on the one hand, and the rights of gays and lesbians to marry on the other. Is there a way to compare across these and say one is more egregious than the other? That one form of semi-citizenship is somehow, uh, uh, you know, the lived experience of one form of semi-citizenship is somehow worse than the other. Is there a way to do this? Well, um, you know, like I said, I the, the descriptions, the descriptive categories aren't are non-normative. Right. So. You know, I can say that a group is more disenfranchised or has fewer rights. Do I want to say that they're, you know, that their lives are better or worse? No, I wouldn't want to say that. And part of the reason I wouldn't want to say that is that um, there are groups who are choosing semi-citizenship. Um, and there's a literature on this. It's a very small literature. But, um, but there are groups who would, for example, reject marriage entirely, um, uh, there are groups who reject legal nationality. Roma are mm-hmm. famous for not wanting um, to be affiliated with states. Right. So, um, so 
you know, do I want to say worse? No, I probably don't. Right. Do I want to say that, that, you know, they have fewer rights in the kind of, in the bundle? Um, children have fewer rights, yes, but, um, I don't want to make that into a better or worse statement. Right, right, right. I understand what you mean. Um, uh, Elizabeth, this book is fascinating, and, uh, I have said this to you before in our somewhat more personal interactions, and I, I, I really do think that this is an impressive and useful uh, text for any for the scholarship on immigration and citizenship. Actually, the the question I now want to ask you is that you know what what future directions do you think other scholars might take your work? I mean, what do you see other people doing with your work? Do you have a sense of where they might take it or how they might use it? Well, um, uh, yeah, I see that there are. Um uh, a couple of um, papers out there now that are starting to look at um, at, uh, at semi-citizenship, applying it to different um, to, to groups, types of migrants, both um, people uh, national, you know, with respect to national origin and different types of status, trying to trying to reveal semi-citizenship where it might not perhaps have been discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there's a tendency when discussing things like um, exclusion and oppression, to look at the variables with which we're most familiar. And, of course, the most disenfranchised groups are the ones, usually the ones that nobody has recognized are actually disenfranchised. So I think that that would be, that to me would be a really useful um, application of the work. I know that there is also, um, there's a lot of interest right now in children's rights, and, and so there's um, the work, uh, is, is being cited with respect to children who have, in some cases, um, uh, multiple variables operating on their semi-citizenship. For example, disability or um, or or uh, immigration questions of, of of immigration status. So, looking at how this stuff gets layered. It, it must be incredibly rewarding to, to spend years and years working on a topic and coming up with a book, and when you see that other scholars are relying on that book, taking it further, uh, this, I, this makes you happy, I'm assuming. <laughs> how, how does it feel? It is, it's, it's rewarding to see it out in the world. It's, you know, it's very rewarding that you've said very kind things about it today. Um, you know, it's, it, it is nice to see... Um, the phrase shelf life referred to, um, uh, in a way outside of the grocery store. <laughs> you know, one hopes that one's, one's ideas have shelf life. And, you know, it's, it's great to be able to discuss it with people. Um, you know, these issues are touching many people's lives, scholars or non-scholars. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that, it is also rewarding to hear people's perspectives on these issues. Right. Elizabeth, what is your next book and why is it important? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, I guess other people will get to say why it's important or not. Um, the next, the next book is um, uh, it. It grew also out of my interest in immigration, and um, it's a discussion of the political meaning of, of meaning of time in politics. Um, and I became interested in time when I was researching the meaning of the probationary period that all immigrants must um, must wait out before they're eligible to apply for naturalization. 
And um, so I was looking back in early um, common law and then and then in at the founding, um, in the period of founding in the United States, and looking at arguments about whether people should be required to wait before they naturalize, how long if they have to wait, mm-hmm. should they be required to wait, and what was this supposed to do? Why do we take these periods of time? What are they supposed to mean? And lo and behold, as I was reading through um, congressional debates, I discovered that not only was it a very contested question, right, because we we just separated from the British because they'd been treating the colonists as, as second-class citizens, right. and then we, we turned around, we want a lot of immigrants in this country, and now we're proposing that we treat this very large group of people we hope will come up, come here, as second-class citizens. So there was some contest about whether there should be a probationary period. And of the people who did think that there should be a probationary period, um, they, they thought the time, that amount of time, meant something different. They didn't all agree on what it meant. So I became interested in in the idea that we measure time in politics and that it means something. Mm-hmm. And that very often when we don't want to bring money, for example, into the picture, we don't want people buying citizenship right. or buying influence, we use quantities of time in place of that money. In other words, the argument of the book will be, but in fact, time has a political exchange value. So we can exchange time for various things, influence, rights, mm-hmm. uh, where we would never use money. Right. And um, and so the book is going to be elaborating different instances of this phenomenon and discussing them. Right. But are you focusing solely on the founding, or are you talking about contemporary uh, immigration citizenship? No. No, I'm absolutely interested in contemporary discussions, not just of immigrants' rights, but also things like to return to something we were talking before, the age of majority for children, for example. Prison sentences, something we haven't talked about very much, but I'm very interested in um, people who have been convicted of felonies. you know, what, why is it we used to, you could punish people in units for pain, you can find them, mm-hmm. um, but we choose to take a certain amount of time away from people's lives in order to punish them. Right. Um, so there's all kinds of instances that are both contemporary um, and have a, a lengthy history in our legal tradition. Right. This sounds fascinating, Elizabeth. Good luck with, with your next work, and I'm eagerly looking forward to reading this manuscript too. And I do hope that you will again give us some time and, inf- and do an interview with us with, when, you, when this book comes out. It would be my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. You have a nice day. You too. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Elizabeth Cohen, Associate Professor of Political Science at Syracuse University, and she was talking about her new book, Semi-Citizenship in Democratic Politics. Thanks very much for listening, and I do hope you will tune in again very shortly. I'm Cyril Ghosh, the host of New Books in Political Science, and I'm signing off for now. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a great day.